Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Have you been wondering why the stock market has skyrocketed higher when the economy feels stuck in first gear during this global pandemic? Or why when a company reports great earnings, their stock price can actually go down? This week, I speak with Nick Raish, founder and CEO of The Earnings Scout. The Earnings Scout is the premier provider of corporate earnings data and trend analysis. Full disclosure, I am a client of The Earnings Scout and utilize their data in making portfolio management decisions for clients at Tama Capital. In our conversation, we dive into the mechanics of the markets and talk about the variables that drive stock prices. We answer the question about why the stock market is not disconnected from the economy, as so many financial pundits would like you to believe. We also touch on the impacts that the election could have on the stock market, and more importantly, your portfolio. Spoiler alert, it is best to keep politics out of your portfolio management decisions. This week's show is different than our first few shows because we focus exclusively on how to help you understand the pieces of the stock market, how they work, and the critical drivers that drive stock prices. If you have questions on how we could help you with your portfolio management decisions, feel free to reach out to us directly. Now enjoy my conversation with Nick Raish. Today on the show, we have Nick Raish. Nick is the CEO and founder of The Earnings Scout in Cleveland, Ohio. I've been a longtime client of Nick's since he started the firm How long ago, Nick? It's been seven years now. So in 2013, we founded the firm. So a little over seven years. That's awesome. And we actually have a connection with Art. We met back in Ohio when I lived in Toledo, thanks to Linda Boyer at the University of Toledo and Dan Klein, her husband, at the University of Bowling Green. So Nick, welcome to the show. We're all excited to have you on and talk about the economy for a change. I know the first few episodes of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast is focused on families and life transitions. But today we're going to really dig into the question that a lot of people have been asking me is, how has the stock market done so well when the economy feels like it's been so bad? So we're going to rip the bandaid off of this one and really get into deep. So I'm glad to have you on the show and looking forward to the conversation. Happy to be here. So just for our audience, if you could just give a little bit of background about who you are, what the Earning Scout is, how you founded it. I think there's a lot of people that'd be interested in that because we have a good portion of our audience that are entrepreneurs and have their own businesses. Well, the Earning Scout was founded in 2013. Prior to that, I was the head of research for KeyBank in Cleveland and then before that, National City Bank during the financial crisis. And I moved to Cleveland from Chicago in 2005, where I'd worked 10 years prior at Zach's Investment Research in Chicago, where I began my career as an earnings analyst. 
manage the earnings department. So I've been following earnings for the last 25 years very closely. I would say probably more than anyone in the country. And as I was compiling earnings at the banks, at National City Bank and Key Bank here in Cleveland, I was realizing we were managing a lot of money. So all the top Wall Street strategists, all the top Wall Street analysts would come in to visit with us in Cleveland as we bought their research. And I realized what they were telling me on earnings was either factually incorrect or it was information that wasn't relevant for stock prices. And the information I was compiling from my Zacks days was more pertinent. And I realized I had something there that could be valuable to other investors and wanted to start my own firm. So I launched that in 2013 called the Earnings Scout. And what we do, the Earnings Scout, is we scout the overall economy and we measure tested rank earnings estimate trends. And not just the ones in the past, because this is going to go with your question to your clients that how can the market be rallying when the data is so bad and the economy is in such bad shape? We don't care what happens with earnings estimate trends. What we're trying to forecast is where the estimate trends are going to be over the next six to 24 months. So we're always forecasting where the trends are going to be. And that's critical for stock prices. And I didn't feel any firm on Wall Street was doing that. And that's what we do with the earnings count. So let's just dive into that question. And it's the million dollar question I've been getting since I want to say back in end of March, beginning of April. And I've written about this and I know you've written about this ad nauseum because Nick puts out a daily commentary that I read every day. And it's that question of, okay, the stock market from those lows in March has just been on a rocket ship up. You look at like companies like even Zoom or Peloton, they're up four or 500, 600% since those bottom lows. But I don't think that unless you're invested in the market and been a participant, I don't think most people have felt that joy of the markets going up. They've been struggling with furloughs and layoffs and looking at these top line, the mainstream media reports of how bad the economy is. And it's really hard to circle that square, if you will. So why don't you start walking us down that path of the fact that the earnings have supported the stock prices and how that really involves the economy and the everyday person. And I think this is the one thing I've been writing about the most because I've been having defend saying that the market's not disconnected from reality whatsoever. And I've been saying the mechanics of the market, the way the stock market works, hasn't changed in over 100 years. What changes are the variables. And the one thing about the mechanics of the market is it's always discounting the future. And people need to understand that. It doesn't care what's happening now. What's happening now in the economy was priced into the stock market many months ago, if not a year ago or longer. The bad data, all the bad stuff from the COVID shutdowns that occurred that we saw during the summer months, that's when the data was the worst. We're going to see the second quarter period here for most companies was the worst part of their earnings. That was priced into the market when the S&P 500 fell 34% from February 19th to March 23rd. So the market did not ignore the bad data. It priced it in back in February. The market's always forward looking. So the market has rallied over 50% since March 23rd. And the reason it's rallying is because a couple reasons, but the first major reason is it's pricing in the worst of the revisions are over and the earnings estimate trends are going to improve. 
and that growth next year in 2021 will be abnormally high. This period, 2020, although the variables are much different, reminds me a lot of 2009. And I've been saying that since March and April when we upgraded stocks at the time. And what we looked at is in 2009, you had the worst of the estimate cuts occurring in February of 2009, the market bottoms in March of 2009, the worst cuts come, and then you have all this stimulus from the Fed. And what the market started doing in the market rallied in 2009, even though the data was awful in 2009, but what it was doing was pricing in abnormally high growth for 2010 a year early. And that's what the market's always looking forward. And so what people need to realize is that growth is going to be abnormally high in 2021. And the market's pricing that in now. So if you think about it, think about April of 2020. Nobody was on a plate. So maybe there was five people on United flight. So next April, if we have 10 people on the flight, just 10, that's 100% growth. So think about the base, how easy that's going to be. So it's going to price in that abnormally high growth now. And the market's always forward looking. And I think a lot of people miss that. They focus on the now, or even worse, they look at past data to try to invest in. And that's a mistake. That's a big mistake. You use that past data to project what's going to happen in the future. And we use the past revisions to try to project where the future revisions are going to be. But you have to focus on the future revisions. And I'll tell you this, I speak with Bob Pisani at CNBC almost daily in earnings season. And literally, I just got off the phone with him about 20 minutes before this call. And he's scratching his head going, Right now, the companies are beating estimates. So 169 S&P 500 companies have reported earnings so far, third quarter earnings as of right now. The margin by which they're beating estimates are some of the widest margins I've ever measured in 25 years. It's about 20% above estimates companies were reporting actual results. That's normally 3 to 6%. And he doesn't understand why the market's not rallying right now. And the reason is the market doesn't care about those beats. That wide margin, that 20%, is the reason why the market's been up 50% since then. What the market wants to see is the revisions get better and then keep on improving path. And that's the main thing you need to worry about as opposed to the beats. When I look at how long I've known you and our relationship and learning about the work that you do, I would say that what you just explained is the one thing that you have taught me, but it took a long time probably too long to grasp that. I see you laughing because you know we've had these conversations multiple times a year, five, six, seven years ago. And I think that's the thing that people really struggle with because they see the mainstream media numbers on how well, like you just said, like Bob Pisani just said at CNBC, the headline numbers get all the juice, if you will. But it's the data behind the scenes that, okay, well, what are those future estimates going to do? And that's what you need to focus on. Don't focus on the beat because one of my questions I was going to ask was how the earnings game is played. That's one topic that I would like you to explain to our audience of how this earnings game is played because companies know it and they play to it. So why don't you explain what we mean by that, that earnings game, if you will? Well, on average, in earnings season, 70 to 80% of companies beat estimates. So how does that always happen? So what they do, the companies being first, guide the analysts. And they guide for the future 
if they know they're going to make 50 cents a share in earnings, they're not going to say 50 cents. They're going to say 45 or 40. Why? So they can meet or beat the estimates. So that always looks good. So you go conservative. And from an accounting standpoint, it's good to be conservative about the future. You want to have pleasant surprises. So the companies automatically temper the expectations of the analyst. And the analysts take that one step further and even take it a little bit lower. So if the company says 45, the analysts probably go 43 or 44, a little bit lower than that. So when the company does report, it has a beat. And one reason is the analysts are not just trying to forecast the earnings right. The analysts are trying to keep the companies happy because the analysts write reports in the research department, but there's an investment banking arm at the major Wall Street firms that want to do deals with the companies to keep the companies happy to do offerings. And it's a conflict of interest. And there's supposed to be a firewall between those two divisions within a company, within a Wall Street company. Yeah. And part of my career, Paul, was created because of the Elliott Spitzer Global Research Settlement in 2001 after the dot-com collapse. When I was at Sachs Investment Research, there was a period we created a research team and I got to head the team. I was in the right place at the right time because Elliot Spitzer, who was the attorney general of New York at the time, went after the top 10 investment banks on Wall Street because of tainted research, because of the conflict of interest between investment banking and research. What you had back then is research analysts in 2000 that would write about dot-com stocks and say, strong buy, strong buy, rate the stock so positively because there was investment banking dollars to be made with the top 10 Wall Street banks. And then they were sending emails out going, I wouldn't touch this stock, it's terrible. And they got caught. And some of the analysts were permanently banned from the industry at the time. But there was a global settlement where the Wall Street firms had to spend $450 million on supplemental independent research because of that bias. And you would think that would have solved the problem, but it's still prevalent. Investment banking still generates more revenue than selling research on the street. And there's supposed to be a firewall, but it's probably a nod, nod, wink, wink. And what I found over the course of my 25 years, I'll tell you one of the things. In the mid-90s when I started my career, I thought the analysts on Wall Street could literally see the future. I couldn't believe the analysts that covered General Electric at the time with all the lines of business could forecast to the penny what that company is going to earn almost perfectly. I'm like, how do they do it? I'm like, I'll never be able to do this. And then I realized that it turned out there was a regulation that came in the early 2000s called Regulation Fair Disclosure. Yep, Reg FD. And Reg FD basically said information that companies give to the public has to be disseminated at the same time, usually via public press release on their website. Well, it turned out in the mid-90s, those analysts who were the best at forecasting earnings estimates turned out to be the golfing buddy of the CFO or things like that, where they got the inside information. And so they couldn't see the future. They were getting the information from the companies themselves. And really the companies themselves should know what the earnings are going to be better than anyone outside the firm. So the company guidance is what drives the revisions. The way the earnings game is played is the companies guide low, the analysts take it lower to keep it, and it paves the way for beats. And here's the thing why I don't think the beats matter. A, because they're manipulated often. They're always going to be tainted to the positive. And B, when a company does in fact report earnings, so we're in third quarter earnings season right now, and we're seeing the biggest beats that I've measured in over 20 years, and that doesn't matter. You're seeing stocks decline this week and they fall in a little bit because the beats don't matter. What matters is the revisions. 
the beats are backward looking and often manipulated and you want to kind of ignore that. One of the things, Nick, that I want to go back to is when we talk about the markets being forward looking, you mentioned that in a hundred years, the mechanics of the market haven't changed. The only thing that changes are variables. So let's talk about what some of those variables could be. To me, I have the 2020 investment equation of why stocks are out. So it's explaining the market this year. And two variables I have, the two biggest variables this year, impacting future earnings, COVID-19, stimulus. So my investment equation of 2020 has been COVID-19 fears easing. And they have eased since March and April of 2020. Plus massive stimulus equals improving earnings expectations. Improving earnings expectations equal rising stock prices. So let's talk about that, those variables. So the variable is COVID-19. And the way I measure COVID-19 fear is not the number of cases. Those are spiking again. That might cause some problems. I'm looking at the death rate. And the reason I look at the rate of death is not just the number of deaths, but the rate of death to see if it's getting better or worse. So everything we do with earnings is second derivative rate of change. Everything I'm doing with COVID analysis is the same way. And rate of change is the only way you see if something's getting better or worse. And the rate of deaths has decelerated since March and April. For whatever reasons, maybe the virus has mutated, maybe we've learned how to handle it better, maybe social distancing, but whatever, the people dying of COVID today is less on a rate of change basis than it was back in March and April. And it's funny, the S&P 500 bottomed on March 23rd. That was the low. That was also the peak rate of death for COVID-19. I don't believe that's a coincidence. And then you combine in massive stimulus from the Fed. I'll talk about that variable COVID-19. When fears were high and the economy shut down, earnings collapsed. And when earnings collapsed, the market went down 34%. On the hopes that the economy was going to open back up, things get better, the improving earnings expectations, because you have a collapse in the earnings, earnings themselves. So you have nowhere to go but up once things start opening back up. No matter if it's lumpy or not, it doesn't even have to go back to normal. It just has to get better. And when you combine in over $10 trillion globally of stimulus, that paves the way for expectations to improve. And those have been the two variables that impact stocks. And you have to look at those variables to see how they're going to improve the earnings expectations. And they certainly have throughout 2020. And those variables, if you think about it, we never know necessarily what those variables are going to be from each crisis to crisis. So if we go back to 08, it was housing. If we go back to 2000, it was tech stocks. Go back further. There's always, it seems like a different variable. Is that a correct statement? That's exactly right. The variables are what change. One constant variable that's always out there is Fed and the policy because they control the level of interest rates. And the level of interest rates really control profits. So it's a very powerful tool. So the Fed's almost always one of the constant variables, if you will. But the variables are constantly changing. Think of COVID-19. None of us knew the word COVID-19 one year ago. It was just starting to come around in China. So you didn't know that this was even going to be a variable that impacted things. And those are where I think COVID-19 was a black swan event, something so rare. I don't think the virus, there's always these viruses that come and go. But the shutdowns and the reaction and the way COVID-19 was, was a true black swan event. That's one thing that was not predictable. That's why we follow the markets every day for clients. And 
to make sure how those variables are gonna impact future profits because that's what's gonna be the driving force of the ultimate stock market. A few days ago, I was having a conversation with a client and the question came up about stimulus. And the client asked a really great question. And it's like, I don't understand how the stimulus will help because it feels to me like stimulus means more debt. And I said, yes, if we were trying to do what the government is doing personally, like we would all be bankrupt. But the Fed, the government has this amazing machine called a printing press, and they can print trillions of dollars. And that's how they can get away with running these massive deficits in this debt. Can you talk a little bit about really how stimulus is that fire, if you will, that helps boost company earnings in the future like we've talked about thus far? That is a great question. So I would not debate anyone who's worried about the negative long-term impacts of all this stimulus and how do we pay for it and the deficit work it all off. But in the interim, short to medium term, the stimulus, what it does is allow profits to be boosted. Whether you want to call it a game of kick the can down the road, extend and pretend, whatever you want to call it, the central banks have been doing it for over a decade now, and it's been working. And fighting that has been futile. And the other thing about the level of debt in the U.S., yes, we have high debt levels. It's about the size of our GDP, $20 trillion in debt. But the rest of the world does too. And when everyone else is all in debt, it's like you're not in debt at all relative to everything else. The markets are all relative. But when I look at the stimulus and how it impacts profitability, you could just think of it for this reason. We shut down the economy. And the overall rate of earnings expectations fell at a rate of 25%. So the profit expectations this year fell at a rate of 25%. And over the last 10 years, that's extraordinary. We usually fall in a range of 1% to 4%. So it went 25%. In 2008, during the financial crisis, estimates fell by 50%. And the economy stayed open. So think about that. Now, we shut the economy down only for several months. But because of all that massive stimulus and small businesses got PPP and people got stimulus checks, it softened the blow, if you will, to the hit to earnings. So yes, there was a big hit to earnings, the biggest hit we've seen in over 10 years, but it wasn't as big a hit as what we saw in 2008, which to me was extraordinary because I was bracing for a 50% drawdown in earnings expectations just from that light switch off. And we didn't get it. So again, the light switch was only shut off for a short time and we flipped it back on. It's not been a smooth opening, but that stimulus helps soften the blow, the extra unemployment benefits for people, the stimulus checks. In 2018, the Trump tax cuts were stimulus. That gave a boost to profits. So those are all ways that get more money into people now. And that's what the market's looking at one to three years out into the future. And one to three years out in the future, it boosts. Long-term, five to 10 years, we can debate that, but the market's not going to trade off of it. So we're recording this on Tuesday, October 27th. So we're like a week away from election. And the other hot button question I get often, you know where I'm going to go with this, is everybody's asking, what does the election impact mean for the stock market and the economy? Because the notion that I'm getting from the families that I work with is, what they're kind of probably seeing in mainstream media, which is Trump election equals stock market higher, economy rebound. 
Biden win, taxes are going up, economy is going to go down, stock market's going to go down. Let's get into that topic. <laughs> I find most of my clients, when we talk about it to them and when they talk to their end clients, they're trying to avoid the conversation right now because no matter what, you get half the people very angry, no matter what you say. And from my standpoint at the Ernie Scout, whoever becomes president to me is a variable that impacts the future earnings. And that variable doesn't mean necessarily the overall economy is going to go down, but there will be certain winners and losers within industries and sectors based on who gets elected. And then I scout based on that, based on the probabilities of where it goes. And to interrupt you for a minute there, Nick, just full disclosure for those listening, because my client families hear this from me all the time, is I keep politics out of portfolios and well planning. It's just, I work with so many different families now through the growth of Tama that I've got people on both sides. I've got people all over the place. And so I answer the question as directly as I can, but I don't make it political. I'm focused on what I can do as your wealth advisor and managing your portfolio and making sure that that portfolio is aligned to what your long-term wealth management plan is. The colors of the earnings scout are green. I don't see blue or red. I try to see green. How <laughs> Agreed. Money? And this is another thing too. I find presidents often get too much credit or too much blame for the economy. Because I said one of the main variables isn't just the fiscal policy, taxes and all that. That impacts the economy. And the president ultimately gets in charge of that aspect. But the other is the Fed which is independent of who's president, and they're controlling the level of interest rates, the Fed, and that controls profitability. And the president doesn't control that whatsoever. And that's a big part of the economy. So the presidents often get too much credit or blame, in my opinion, so we tend to overthink it. But I want to talk about the math if Biden gets elected. And I know all the polls right now, as of October 27th, appear it's going to be a landslide for Joe Biden, just as it did in 2016 for Hillary Clinton. It's very similar. So we could talk about that. I'm going to say this. I don't believe the markets are betting Joe Biden's going to win. And the reason I say that is because I mentioned the Trump tax cuts that occurred. President Trump took tax rates in 2018. He enacted the Trump tax cuts that took corporate taxes from 35% down to 21%. So I do the math, I compile the earnings, and I see when companies pay less taxes, I saw companies have hundreds of millions of dollars, more in cash flows. And in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, so Warren Buffett, who I like worship, he sways to the left. And in 2018, Berkshire Hathaway, his company, had $29 billion of extra cash because of the tax cuts. 29 billion with a B in cash. And Warren Buffett goes, but we didn't earn that. He's right, you didn't earn it, but you got it. So Walgreens had like $400 million of extra cash. It was amazing how many hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars companies had in cash because of taxes. That was stimulative. Biden wants to take the tax rate from 21% up to 28%. And also for companies creating products overseas, if they sell it back to America, wants to do a 10% surcharge on top of that. So for some corporations, and when I talk S&P, I'm talking multinational companies here, 
the effective tax rate is going to go into the low 30s percent, almost back to where it was. Just doing the math there, knowing that in 2018 that was stimulative, this has to be anti-stimulative. Yeah, it'll work the opposite way. It has to be. And I can do the math to almost depending. I know where the net earnings are for companies. I can see where their corporate tax rates are. I can take it higher. And you're looking at about a 10% hit to earnings, roughly, that's going to be in there. And if you have that hit to earnings and stock prices are discounting future earnings, you would either have to see, in my opinion, one of two things happen. Stock prices need to reset lower to reflect less earnings. And keep in mind, stock prices rose in 2017 in anticipation of the 2018 cuts. Again, the market looks forward. Stock prices didn't rise in 2018 because of the tax cuts. They rose in 2017. So stock prices aren't falling right now in anticipation of tax hikes. So the market might be betting that Biden might not win and Trump's going to get reelected. Or the market could be betting that Biden's going to get elected and he's not going to raise taxes because he doesn't control maybe the House or the Senate. Whatever. There might not, because Wall Street firms are saying there's going to be a blue sweep. So if there's a sweep, tax hikes are coming. And you would have to see the earnings take a hit. Now, some people on Wall Street are saying, yeah, you're going to get the tax hikes, but Biden's going to pass through all this fiscal stimulus that's going to offset it. And I'm going to call foul on that for this reason. Not all 500 companies in the S&P 500 will benefit from fiscal stimulus. There will be some companies that do. All 500 companies are going to get impacted by a tax hike. And I can calculate that. So I don't believe it will be offset. So either stock prices need to reset lower to reflect that, or stock prices, their earnings get hit and the prices stay level. The multiples in the market would expand. And that's a risk factor that would go up in the market. So that's what I would see. I think the earnings estimate trends are going to weaken regardless of who is president. I think Biden gets us there a little quicker if he's going to tax companies more because that's a, just a quicker hit to earnings. That's just that for that reason. So there would be a hit to earnings and I do believe you'd see that reset lower. And I think it'd be a very tough environment right now for Biden to raise taxes on January 1st, retroactive applied, given that we're in a pandemic and you still see companies that need stimulus. The airline industries, the cruise lines have been damaged. And you're going to see some impairment to their operations for years to come from this. And that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, because when you look at the last six to seven months, there's a clear delineation between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to these companies. These tech firms have just gone off the charts. I mean, you look at Apple was up, what, 70%, Amazon up big, like I already mentioned, Zoom up five, 600%. When you look at this data, do you kind of dissect, call them like the post-COVID winners from the post-COVID losers? You have to. So a lot of the recommendations we make, we have an investment playbook where we're making the sector industry recommendations and we make company recommendations too. And a lot of the best earnings trends have been in the names like an Amazon, like a PayPal. Zoom. Why? Because their businesses are benefiting in this environment. And we are on a Zoom call now. So that's been one of the high flyers. And the reason is corporations now, it's becoming more acceptable to do one of these Zooms. It's becoming acceptable for CNBC to have you on and broadcast from your home as opposed to go to a TV studio that is a have not that made money on those. And hotels, 
there might be less business meetings and conferences that occur now into the future because it's become acceptable to use Zooms and it's cost effective. And a lot of corporations that I talked to were saving a lot of money because of this. A lot of people are going to work from home now permanently. The companies didn't want to invest in laptops and the wiring and all the others to get people to work from home and they didn't think people would be productive. Now they're finding out they can be productive in the COVID world and they don't have to commute. So they drive less. They don't need the miles on their cars. The repairs on their cars get less. There are things here that have, I don't know that I can ever say the word permanent, but definitely change the economic environment over the next one to three years because of COVID-19. And just think of the energy sector has been hit hard right now because less people are driving and the demand was already weak going into COVID and it's going to be less post because more people will be working from home and doing calls like this on Zoom. And I think that's one of the million dollar questions. And when I'm every week working on portfolio management and researching companies and trends and is this long-term structure, what has COVID done from a long-term structure standpoint? What has it you use the word permanently, maybe it's not permanent, maybe it's semi-permanent, but what are those structural changes that have been accelerated? Like companies were starting to have let people work from home and now it's full game. Same way with the whole video technology and things like that. Like if you're in commercial real estate, I'd be really, really nervous right now. So it's trying to get a handle on these structural changes because I remember when Zoom reported last quarter or whatever, and they quadrupled earnings. And I remember Josh Brown was on CNBC halftime report and said, basically pointed out, and it's like, look, we all thought we were paying way too much a multiple then. And now look, their revenue is quadrupled. They're, it's actually supporting that. And that's where the companies that you want to own right now, at least from my perspective, are when you look at a traditional PE or price to earnings multiple, Historically, they look expensive, but I think it all goes back to what you've taught me over the years and how we let off our conversation is the markets are forward looking. And so how much do you want to bet on these structural changes actually taking place? You said one thing that I think is key here. I don't know that COVID, it feels like it changed things. I think it accelerated trends that were already going to happen, like the work from home that was probably going to happen. It pushed it over the edge. People ordering off of Amazon and eBay as opposed to going out. People were doing that. It pushed it over the edge to those benefits. So I think it accelerated things that were already going to happen. And the other thing, too, you talk about multiples being high. Companies grow into it. The market speculates every day what those future earnings are going to be. Every day, the market's based on variables that come in. So if we think there's not going to be stimulus or we think maybe, okay, Biden is going to get elected, that's going to impact earnings and the market adjusts to that quickly and rapidly and speculates. The market speculates and guesses on that. And sometimes it guesses right and sometimes it guesses wrong. The market itself, we try to take advantage of that by measuring what's actually happening with the estimate trends and seeing if there's any divergences or not. But a lot of times companies grow into the multiple. So as the market rallied from March on as virus fears ease in the stimulus and everyone saw the bad data in the second quarter thinking there was a disconnect, what the market grew into was the best revisions occurred in the S&P 500 in July and August that we measured in over a decade. And the market was predicting that beginning in March and April. And everyone that said, oh, it's so bad, was then going, oh, the market saw this ahead of time. 
the market's really good at forward looking. The market's getting smarter and smarter. And the one thing I would say, if the mechanics of the markets are always the same, the one thing that is a little bit different, the speed of the markets has gotten faster and faster and faster. But what's driving the way the markets go is still the underlying discounting future earnings and cash flows. Speculating about that, it's just the speed of the markets move has turned quicker and quicker because of the computing power and the algorithmic trading. I know that's a topic that you and I have talked about, and it's something that I'm still, in order to be a better portfolio manager of what, that's one of the hats I wear as a family's wealth advisor is being their portfolio manager as well, is learning that the speed of the market has changed. I know I've talked to clients and families about this before. It's like the market moves so damn fast now, and it's like you really need to stay on top of it. And that's why I've seen growth this year from a lot of people that used to DIYers, do it yourself. They'd run their own portfolio and they're just, they've come to me now. I just can't do it. I don't necessarily know what's going on. It's all moving so fast and it's all overwhelming. And that I know you and I had this conversation back in April on how fast things are moving. And that's something that I'm still evolving as I look to improve my portfolio management skills and making sure that I'm changing my processes to be able to react, not the right word, but be more prepared. So like knowing like I want to own Apple at $110 a share, I've got my trade orders in, very systematized, almost robotic. I wouldn't try to play the game of trying to keep up with the algorithmic traders because they're going off in milliseconds. I think that's a losing game unless you have a supercomputer behind you. But what we look for, Paul, is the divergences. I know you and I discuss those a lot and have talked about those and you look at those a lot. And it's trying to find an opportunity. When we could see a weakening estimate trend happening and rising price, that's when we take advantage of trying to sell a stock. We call it an alligator jaw because you can see a divergence and alligator jaws always close. It all it takes is a trigger to get that jaw to close. We can't predict what that trigger is going to be. And actually for the markets, at the beginning of this year, we were underweight stocks. We went underweight stocks in December 2019, not because of COVID-19, but because an alligator jaw was opening. There were weakening estimate trends on the S&P 500 and rising price. An alligator jaw was open. And then you had COVID-19 hit. I didn't see the shutdowns coming, but that just caused that jaw to close really hard. But there was an alligator jaw that was open. And every major sell-off we've seen in the market since my career began over 25 years ago, there has been an alligator jaw. There's no alligator jaw open right now. We think that an alligator jaw may start to open over the several months. If we see stock prices continue to rise, that alligator jaw will definitely open through year end, but it's not there right now. It's funny. I'm laughing. <laughs> I was wondering how long it was going to take you into our conversation to mention the word alligator jaws and like what that actually meant for people. Can you explain that one more time on what that actually means? Because that's something that it goes back to that divergence is you and I talk about this a lot. And that's something that I pay attention to every week when I'm reviewing your data. Like I said, when people say there's a disconnect in the market, they're looking at the current earnings and seeing bad and the market rising. And they think there's a disconnect. That's not how the market operates. So it's off of future earnings. So we always measure the future earnings and whether they're getting better or worse. And we use an alligator jaw to do the analogy. When we see a true divergence, a true disconnect, where the future earnings expectations are getting weaker and weaker and weaker consistently, 
and the price keeps rallying. So the price is going north and the earnings are going south, the expected earnings are going south, the jaw opens. That's when we say there's a disconnect in the market. We've been doing it 25 years. We know when there's a disconnect. There wasn't a disconnect at all in the spring and the summer of this year. They were moving in the same direction. The estimate trends were getting better and better. The price was rallying. When an alligator jaw opens, that's when we start to take the opportunity to say, okay, start taking profits in the market, pulling back. The price is getting too high. The multiple in the market's expanding too much. We want to get out. And not completely out, but enough to start pulling back and start selling some of the bigger winners and companies that have divergences in their estimate trend in price. Again, prices can't keep going north and earnings expectations going south for any length of time. Think about it. I always use a lemonade stand example or a business. If we were going into business together and what we knew about the future was going to get worse and worse and worse, we know the value of our business would not be going up and up and up rationally. So that's what I'm looking at in the market. And when I see that happen, that's when I scale back on stocks. It's not happening right now. And I remember having that conversation with you at the end of, because we usually talk every couple months, but at the end of 2019, talking about that divergence and I was seeing the data and then you were confirming it and having those talks, which is what led me to start scaling back in the beginning of January. And so obviously we didn't know, we heard of COVID, but obviously to your point, like you mentioned, we had no idea the course it was going to take. But to me and to you at that point in time, the markets, the data was telling us things are too expensive. You need to pull back. And that's one of the key emphasis is that I talk with families about when I'm managing their assets or talking about their portfolio performance. It's never a question of being all in or all out. I think that that's some of the misconceptions that people get when it comes to portfolio management and managing their assets because they're looking at mainstream financial media or CNBC. You never want to make that bet all in or all out. It's like going to Vegas and putting it on black or putting on red. And a lot of what I do is education from walking my clients through that process because I want to make sure what I've learned in doing this for a number of years, 10, 20 years, is helping my clients understand the mechanics of how some of this works because if I can get them to understand and buy in, they're not as fearful when we see what happened in March of this year. And probably like you, I never got a single panic call from any of my families that I work with. And just the opposite, I had probably half a dozen that called and said, hey, should we be taking advantage of this opportunity? Let me put some more money into my kids' 529 or my IRA, or let's make these contributions earlier. And so it goes back to calming people's nerves and providing that peace of mind that I know that that's one of the main objectives that I provide to my clients. And I know that you do as well. And going all in or all out on the stocks wouldn't be prudent. And the reason is no one in the world can predict the future. We're using reams and reams of data and tons of data, millions and millions of calculations we run at the Earnings Scout to try to put the odds in our favor of trying to find out where the direction of the economy is going to go. But no one knows the future. It goes back to what I said. I thought analysts could see the future. They can't. No one knows if COVID is going to get worse from here or not, where cases are rising. We can just measure that data and act accordingly. And then based on that probabilities, what we can then do is over underweight where we're normally at strategically for your client's allocation based on their risk tolerances and objectives. 
that's the way to do it. But if you have an advisor that's going all in or all out, I would run for the hills. You're doing it the right way. So I've got two final questions. The first one I want to ask is my last, I guess, technical question. And it actually is a conversation that I have a lot with my families that are in retirement already. And we talked a lot about the Fed and Fed keeping rates at zero have really killed yields, savings rates, CD rates. Over the course of the last few years, a lot of my families, one of the prudent things to do is have an emergency or reserve fund. And so we put that in a high yielding money market account. Well, a year, year and a half ago, that was like one and three quarters or 2%. Now it's three quarters or less. And that's 10 times higher than what you would normally get at a brick and mortar, Huntington, JP Morgan Chase, name whatever bank you want. They're still better off, but people are really struggling on where to generate yield. And that's where from my perspective, I'm very cautious about chasing yield because usually when you start chasing yield, the risk starts ratcheting it up and that could be problematic. I mean, this has been a problem for savers for over a decade now. The Fed does not want you saving your money. They want you spending your money. They're trying to stimulate the economy. That's what low rates will do. It unfortunately punishes savers. The Fed does not want that. And this is a problem that I've been dealing with for over 10 years with people searching for yield and living off fixed income. So there's different strategies, yield enhanced strategies you can make, but you're just not going to get the same level of yield that you used to get in the mid 80s. Those days are gone. And the crazy thing is on a relative basis, some of the best yields in the world, interest rates in the world to get are in the US. Some places in the world have negative negative rates. Yeah. Can you imagine that? So there was even talk of rates going negative here in the US. So talk about really punishing savers, where putting money under the bed mattress would actually be a better investment than actually in a treasury bill is just insane for me to think about. So my final question that I ask of all of my guests, and I know that you have two kids of your own and you're heavily involved in sports, and I don't think we've covered this yet or I noted this, but you were a Division One basketball player, correct? Division two. So I got Division recruited two. by some Division one schools, could have went, but I played Division two down in Florida, yes. So basketball is big in our life, and my son's very big into it. He's got tryouts starting tomorrow and taking him to training all the time. And I coached his AAU basketball team this summer and fall. So my closing question for you is, what is the best thing about being a parent? Oh, when they listen, actually, that's the best <laughs> thing. So my daughter's 15. And she and I have differing political views. And I love that she has a different political view than me, but it makes some challenges for debates at the dinner table. But I love her to be a critical thinker and teaching her that. To me, as they're learning, one thing I'm trying to teach them, particularly in this world, I try to teach myself this for investing too. And it goes for the news we get. Everything we get out in the world is so biased right now. It seems like even from the mainstream media, you just don't know whether to believe it or not. And even when it's true, half of America doesn't believe it. So trying to teach them how to be a filter and learning how to critically think to me has been rewarding. But when they actually listen is a good thing and they don't fight. It's been great. I feel very blessed to have two very healthy, good kids that try to do well in school and try to do their best. That's what I'm most proud of. When they do sports, I always tell them, I don't care if they score 20 points or zero points, I just care that they give their best effort and work out hard. And I have kids that do that. Well, that's great. I think that's 
a fitting end to wrap up our conversation. Nick, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast today. And I'm sure that this won't be your last guest appearance on our show. I see us having this conversation on a regular basis for all of our audience. So I greatly appreciate you being on today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to coming back. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.